To get into this properly, yeah, man. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the North Egypt podcast. Uh, today on the show, Professor Mike's de-aged. <laughs> now we're joined by Tom Broughton, who's uh, a member here at the academy, and has uh, given given me his time while uh, Professor Mike's away. And um, brought him on the podcast. Thanks yeah. for being here, Tom. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure. We're talking some jits, talk some about your story and jits, and just talk about whatever you want, man. Sounds great. How long have you been a member here? So I've been a member, I think, since May 2021. Um, so pretty early doors then. Yeah, fairly early doors, I think. Um, so a, more than a year now. Um, and happily say that time's flown by. Mm. What made you want to come down first? I knew that I wanted to practice jujitsu. Um, I'd done six weeks or so at the Scramble Academy All right. in York. Uh, not in York, sorry, in Leeds. Mm. Uh, and then COVID happened, everything got locked down, etc. And then I actually moved to the locality, uh, to the academy. And um, I knew that I wanted to come back, was looking at academies. And then just one day, you know, searching the jujitsu train on Instagram. And I think one of Professor Mike's videos popped up. And I thought, oh, I thought that's, that's different. I like the look of that. And then it turns out it was, you know, five minutes away from me <laughs> and I thought well I've I've got no excuse now um so I'd best crack on yeah literally on your doorstep right like how long does it take you to get here uh well, I mean 30 <laughs> seconds <laughs> <laughs> just around the corner so yeah I've, I've got really no excuse compared to some of the guys who've got to travel from like Otley yeah um, the Wakefield those yeah, guys here yeah I think I should be doing double everyone else is what they're doing just to keep ahead <laughs> since I'm so close. Now that's awesome, man. So how did you first hear about Jiu-Jitsu? Was it like the UFC or? <sighs> I wish that I had a unique answer, but like everyone else, I think I'm just going to say Joe Rogan. <laughs> uh, I really wish that I had uh, an idea. I think um, I had some weights in my garage at home and I was training one day and I'd started feeling just lifting weights for the sake of lifting weights was becoming a bit boring. And as I'd been training, as you do, because I'm a bloody bloke, I was listening to Joe Rogan. And there's, there's one, of the, one of his clips where he talks about what jiu-jitsu is, what it means, how you can roll really hard, how it's about skill acquisition, self-defense, you know, improving yourself. Um, and I thought, that sounds really different. It sounds like a complete step out of my comfort zone. Um, and I thought, wouldn't it be wild if a big lump like me did something skill-based like jiu-jitsu and something that was a martial art. Um, I actually told my wife, I said, I'm going to do jiu-jitsu. And she smiled and nodded and said, whatever, mate. <laughs> and then, yeah, here I am. Awesome. Man. Had you uh, done a lot of martial arts before or were you quite sporty growing up? What's, what was the story there? Yeah, so no martial arts whatsoever. Um, the closest thing I would say is I played rugby up in, until I was about uh, 11 okay and then I hurt my ankle and and about that age I was coming up against some of the chaps who they were bigger than my dad right and I was just getting annihilated and the, the impact and the force I just thought I'm on a one-way ticket to getting hurt here so never did any martial arts 
And um, as I was growing up, I got really heavily into music, mm. um, been in lots of bands, um, played bass guitar. Um, and so really my path took me away from sports um, and took me really quite heavily into music um, and playing in bands, some of them more successful than, the, uh, than others. Um, and so really music, particularly rock music, was, was my life through my teens and probably up until I was about 21, 22. Um, During that time, did you get into many fights when you were in bands? I've never been in a fight. Okay. I've never, which is strange because I'm cocky and loud. (laughs) 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 Um, As my friends like to tell me. So, never been in a fight. And I don't know why that is because I don't, I don't look mean. Um, I think I I kept my nose reasonably clean when I went out. I would never go looking for trouble. That's just Mm. not as about. But, um, and as well, I, you know, a lot of, some of the time we were wearing like skinny jeans and eyeliner and maybe everyone, nice. yeah, maybe everyone just thought it's not, that's not worth starting a fight over. <laughs> maybe you were intimidated. Maybe that was it. Yeah. yeah. So where did, uh, where did the music stuff take you? What happened? You said you were about 21? Yeah. So, um, Played bass guitar and I'd, I'd basically, I always knew that I wanted to play bass and it was quite a calculated decision when I went to secondary school. Everybody wanted to be a guitarist. Everybody wanted to be a guitarist. And so I thought, well, if I'm a bass player and I'm a good bass player, I'll have my pick of the bands. Um, and my mum said to me at the time, she said, well, if you're a bass player, you're not going to get any of the girls. And it turned out, Thanks, she, was, yeah, well, it, it turned out she was right. <laughs> yeah. So always listen to mum. Um, and so I played for probably, probably 10 years and then in various sort of high school bands and we did like competitions and, um, some various small time stuff. And then probably when I was about 18, um, I was on a, my gap year, my first gap year. Um, and very, it was a very strange occurrence that I came to know that the big local band in my town, like the band were looking for a bass player and it just so happened that I fit the bill, um, got into this band and then for probably, I think it was maybe three or four years, um, we were practicing like five or six times a week, every night for two or three hours. Um, we recorded albums, we had music videos, we went on tour. Um, and it was, it was about the, about the realist deal, I think, as you could, as you could get. And I, and I then went to university and was in between going out and having loads of fun in Newcastle and then bouncing backwards and forwards from, from the band. I was going home and practicing with them and still going on tour and, uh, and all that type of thing. So it was, um, it was a fantastic experience. I think if it hadn't, music gave me my identity mm. and it told me who I was. And I honestly, I don't know what I'd have done without it. Uh, it was, I was very grateful for it. What was the name of the band? So the band, when, before I joined them, they were called Lynchpin, L-Y, Lynchpin. And then when I joined them, we became The Fallen, all one word, but the was in lowercase and fallen was in okay. capital letters. It was nice. And then, and then I left eventually and they became The Family Ruin. Um, it's what they, what they changed their name to. How come you left? Um, so 
I left after I'd been to uni and I came back home. And honestly, it was because I'd done the uni thing of, you know, uh, filling my boots, going out, having lots of fun. Um, and I knew for the rest of my life that I wanted to, I knew that I wanted to have an office job. Um, I knew that I wanted to be comfortable. I didn't want to be sleeping on the floor. Um, I wanted to be in around my friends and family. Um, and I, I think as well, I wanted to do something where the, my success would be determined by my own effort and skill mm. rather than perhaps be guided more by a group effort. And so basically it was a, it was a lifestyle choice. Right. And I said to the chaps, it's just not for me. And so if I can't see myself in five years doing it, I'm going to tell you now, because they were in the pro we were in the process of not, I think, yeah, I think it was heading towards us, the band becoming more involving and more serious. And it eventually led to them getting signed. But I said this for me right now, I want to back off. So mm. out of respect for their commitment and their skill, I said, it's, it's not for me. I'm going to back away now. Was that a difficult decision to make? Um, Strangely, um, it was an emotionally challenging decision and I didn't take it lightly, but because I knew that it wasn't right for me, it was, I think in hindsight, I think it was, it wasn't too difficult for me to come to that conclusion. Right. I think the difficult part was I completely lost my identity. I was a band guy. Mm. I was a bass player in this well, reasonably well known band in the locality. And then that was by my own choice. I let go and I had to find something else. Right. Um, so that that part was challenging, but in terms of the I know I'm leaving, that was mm. that was okay. That was fun. So what did you uh, study at university? Um, so initially, I actually had a place to, uh, to go to the Trinity College of Music in Leeds to study music performance, and then um, eventually decided I need to basically grow up before I went to uni because I just felt like a teenager still. Um, so I had my gap year and then I eventually went to Newcastle to do sociology. Um, the great thing about sociology is you pretty much can't be wrong. <laughs> Someone, someone's got the same opinion as you in one of the fields. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and because there's no, because it's, it's, I mean, it's all theoretical, I suppose, but there's never any conclusion to it. Yeah. So as long as you remembered different opinions and you could regurgitate them, you're pretty much all right, <laughs> which was absolutely fantastic. Like maths, for example, you know, there's a definitive hard answer. Mm. Well, I'd have been rubbish at that. Yeah. I, I did similar things. I, I went, well, not at uni, but at A-level I did a pick, like, do you want to do any, like, difficult, difficult subjects? Yeah. I, I just wanted to get enough A-levels that I could go and uh, uh, that if I was to one day want to go to uni, yeah. uh, I'd have something. Yeah, um, points, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think, did I need a level? I can't remember if I needed A-levels to go to... I wanted to initially apply as an officer to the Marines. I think I might have needed A-levels for that too. Okay. Um, I was like, oh yeah, what's it? I like, sociology, psychology, and <laughs> classical <laughs> civilization. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> Proper soft oh, subjects. That, that last one sounds legit, <laughs> Classical civilization. Yeah, it's just like studying ancient Greece and Rome. Oh. I thought, oh, I'd just be watching Troy. And <laughs> yeah, that's legit. <laughs> yeah. I'd have been all over that. That sounds great. Yeah, sociology, it... Uh, it felt it felt soft, and then and I, and I think I I felt like I did pretty well at it without really having to work too hard. 
Um, and so I was like, well, that's the obvious choice to go mm. to uni and study. And are you are you from Leeds? Initially? No, I'm from York. Ah, okay, right. Yeah, so just down the road. Yeah, right, right, cool. Um, uh, was there any pressures to go to university or was it always just your own kind of thing? Uh, I wouldn't say there's any pressure, but, and I think this might, well, maybe I won't, I won't talk out of turn and assume that anyone else would say the same. At my sixth form, um, which was a state school, it just felt like anyone who went into sixth form was naturally just going to go to mm. uni. It wasn't, it, there was no pressure. It was just like from night to day. It was just the path that you were, you didn't even realize you were being guided into. Um, so no, but I, I, don't feel, I don't feel I felt any pressure, but also I never resisted it. Mm. So query whether I would have butted heads right. with whatever if I tried to do something else. So you're leaving uni about what, 21, 22 kind of thing? Uh, yes, yeah. Uh, and then you've left the band at that time? Yeah, j roundabout. You've roundabout. had a bit of a loss of identity. Yeah, major. What happens? Um, went to the gym and started lifting weights. Um, and um, hit it hit it really hard. And basically rebuilt my... Um, what do you say? Routine. My routine and my core and my identity basically about having the discipline to go to the gym and be able to lift weights. I mean, I was still going out on the wreck. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I was still going out, but you can't go and lift weights at eight o'clock on a Saturday morning if you've been out until three or four. Mm. Um, and that, that core focus got me through that transistory, transistory? Transitory. Yes. Nice. Got me through that. Got me through that period, um, and uh, as I don't know if it is even cringe to say it, but yeah, I owe a lot to just uh, lifting weights, mm. really. And Mike Chang of Six Pack Shortcuts on YouTube learned everything I know. I mean, do you ever watch his videos? No, no. Horrendous of age so badly, but how do you do a bicep curl? Just get on there. Yeah, classic. <laughs> nice. So you're lifting weights, you're keeping strong, yeah. and I imagine at some point uh, you, you meet your now wife? Yes, yeah. Uh, no, actually, that was, that was after... So I came... came um, I, during that year when I'd also left the band, I also went and did some travelling. Um, and I worked abroad. And then... In around that time, I think I said, my dad said something to me to the effect of, well, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? Because you're a bum and you need to sort yourself out. And I thought, well, what, what jobs do I know off, off my hand? And I thought, well, doctor, I'm not clever enough and blood and I'm, you know, I can't work that hard. Um, <laughs> teacher, I don't think I'm patient enough to be a teacher to my discredit. Um, accountant, well, I'm no good at maths, so I can't do that. I was like, a lawyer. I was like, well, lawyer would be fun. Um, and I looked into it and there's a two-year application process for it. You, when you go to, when you start as a student to, <clears throat> on the journey to eventually become a lawyer, they, they, you apply two years in advance because they know they're probably going to have to send you back to law school. So I said to my dad, going to be a lawyer. And he mm. said, nice one. Good luck. Um, but and, got, and you had enough like uh, entry type requirements you just needed a, a degree kind yeah, of thing yeah well or? law school now basically anyone, as long as you've got a degree anyone can pretty much go to law school um, 
but what what in that in that time in that change of in that period um i decided i was going to do law i um put in some applications i eventually got a position um where they said they'd sponsor me to go to law school and then give me a job training once i got to the other side oh nice and after law school that's when i met my wife um because we kicked around in in york together mm. So what was, uh, and you just kind of briefly glossed over it, yeah, what was your, your so, travelling stuff there? Yeah. Tell me a bit about that. <clears throat> so I um, can't really remember what happened, what spurred it, but my cousin, who's, um, who's also my best friend, um, and he's, he's an imbecile, but great fun. I uh, can't really remember how it happened. I think we were just young, free and single, um, and said, oh, well, we'll, we'll, go, to, we'll go on a trip, um, backpacking to Europe. Um, we did a month of kicking around. We did uh, Italy, Croatia. Uh, we did Hungary, uh, Poland, Czechoslovakia, um, and then Berlin. And we flew home. And literally, as I flew home, I looked at him. I said, "I'm not done." I said, "I'm. I've still got that first. Mm. So I, I pretty much I fl- got home, and then I flew straight back out, and I got a job working in a hostel. In, uh, on an island in Croatia, um, just as a, a hostel boy making beds and checking people in. I did that for about six weeks, got free drinks at the bars because I'd heard, heard, heard everyone down there for, <laughs> for stuff. And honestly, it was the best time. <laughs> it was like a film. Um, I mean, Croatia is a beautiful, beautiful place. Um, the people are fantastic, the food's great, and the water around the coast is to die for. And just every day I'd be like making beds and then I'd just go sit in a bar or on the beach with these um, backpackers and nobody's unhappy when they're backpacking. Mm. Like everyone's having a good time. And I found that the closer you got to the beach, the happier everyone was. (laughs) So my aim would be as soon as people got there, I'd be like, drop your bags off and let's go. And then you got to see people at the best. And whilst I was there, we also travelled through uh, Bosnia, Serbia, Romania, um, and then and then kicked around a bit. Wow, kicked around a bit there. What uh, what stories do you tell still tell or that keep coming up between you and your cousin from those kind of There's time travelling? I think the I think the funniest. The f- uh, so some of them are certainly not suitable uh, for <laughs> YouTube. We'll uh, save that for the after hours podcast. <laughs> yeah. Oh well, I tell you, I tell you the, I tell you the funniest one that I actually said in his best man speech. So um, we get to we get to Croatia for the first time, and rather than having a room on an overnight ferry, which was like twenty euros a piece, we said, "Oh, we'll save our money." So we got bought like three liters of really rubbish wine each. Um, and drank them and then slept on the floor. And by the time we got to Croatia, we were just ruined, <laughs> broken husks. <laughs> and so we dropped our stuff at the hostel, went to the beach, and it was the first time we'd been in the sun on this trip. And we're both, you know, English pasty boys. And um, he got horrendously sunburned, like awfully sunburned, like he's really graphically bad sunburn. And so we went back to the hostel, both still hanging. He's really sunburnt. And this, there were this group of French girls. And they said, uh, they didn't, I think they were f- um, French-Canadian, actually, said, do you want to come for dinner with us tonight? And we said, yeah, sure. I mean, God knows why they asked us. We look like the in-betweeners. <laughs> 
so we went to Dubrovnik, which was a, a nice part of Croatia, and we sat down at this table. And on the way there, my sunburnt cousin, he went into a shop and bought a bottle of, or wanted after sun to soothe himself. And he came out with this bronze colored bottle. And I said, uh, I said, I swear after sun's always that pale blue. And he said, nah, mate, he said, not in Croatia. <laughs> so he slathers it on and it's oil oh. and it's oil. So we sit down and I was wearing this yellow t-shirt and a, basically like a, you know, like a money band under your t-shirt. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Sit down at the table and this belly band like pops, okay? And so these girls are laughing and then I'm wearing this yellow t-shirt and for whatever reason it attracts all of the local insect life. <laughs> so the, the thing we talk about, my cousin and I, is sat in the most beautiful restaurant in the world with this seafood dinner and these three French Canadian girls. And he sat there with his skin peeling off, but covered in this bronze tanning oil. And I'm there with these girls laughing at me because my, my money belt had broken like a loser covered in insects. Um, so that was, yeah, that was, that was one. Fun times. That was the, that's the one that we talk about the most often. We call it just a c catastrophe. Do you miss those times quite a lot? I look back on them very fondly, like really fondly. They were, they were just golden. Mm. Um, felt like you were making history, uh, but I'm not sure if I could man it, mm. you know, I'd, is, miss my, I'd miss my cat. Yeah. Um, is there any other uh, temptation to try and recreate those kind of things? Mm, I don't, I don't think to recreate, I don't think to recreate it. Um, I look back on it very fondly and I look forward to making new and different memories but maybe not trying to recreate it because I think it would always just be a shadow yeah. of, of what you were trying to do. And it almost um, detract from it. You know, it would, it would dull, it would dull the memory. Yeah. Um, now I, I want to go back to, but never mind sleeping in a hostel. I want to go in all inclusive. <laughs> I want to go to bed at nine o'clock and read my Kindle. <laughs> the crazy life. <laughs> yeah. Crazy life. Rock and roll brother. <laughs> Uh, so um, you, you finished law school, you uh, started this firm, I imagine. Yeah. Uh, that's a big change from being in Croatia yeah. with the French-Canadian girls. Yeah, it's a, no French-Canadians at my firm, <laughs> especially not French-Canadian girls. Uh, what's that like? Uh, it was, um, I remember having nightmares in my first two or three months of starting at this law firm um, where I was literally looking I was dreaming that I was in a classroom talking to my law school tutors and I was shouting at them, nothing that you have done has prepared me for the reality of being a solicitor. Mm. Um, uh, it was a complete change in way of speaking to people, um, a way of interacting with people, um, pressure, deadlines. And actually, I remember the, the worst thing was just stamina. Um, sitting at a desk and applying your mind and being under pressure from, you know, eight o'clock, half past eight until in that, that first um, place that I sat in, um, you're working till about seven o'clock. And I remember getting to f half past five. I remember nearly falling asleep at my desk. So it was a really tough learning experience. And the way that it works when, on your journey to be a solicitor is, there's various ways to do it, but my way, um, you do. I did my undergrad in something that was non-law, 
And then you can do something called a um, conversion where you basically do a one-year course and they pretty much cram three a three-year law degree into about 10 months. So they squash it all together and you just nail it. Um, and at the end of it, everything rides on seven three-hour exams all in a row. Dish, 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 dish. Um, and then you do another year, which is called the legal practice course, which is about, you know, how do you write a document and so on. And then once you've finished all your books and your learning, you then go and do two years where you train on the job. And that's different to, say, being a doctor or being an accountant, where you do a little bit of books and then you do a little bit of work or they might be happening at the same time. Law, it's all you do your books and then you go to the office and put your suit on and you train for two years. And during those two years, you sit in different places and they call those seats. So you might sit for six months in litigation and six months in property and six months in corporate or whatever or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and my first seat <clears throat> was sat in commercial litigation. Uh, and it was, um, what's, if brutal is 10 out of 10, what's about 7.1? <laughs> really challenging. Um, but it was a, you know, I remember a, a being on a, a Friday night coming up to Christmas and all the other people who were training had gone out for the drinks to socialise or whatever. And I was just stuck at a photocopier making folders of documents that were urgently needed for the Monday. Um, and I was really, I was having a grim time of it and woe is me and all the rest of it. And then a, a senior solicitor walked past me and he just, he nodded me and he, and he said, don't worry. He said, everyone's done their time in the trenches. Everyone has done what you're doing. It's all right. Um, and I found great comfort in that. There was nothing unusual in the challenge that I was facing. Mm. It was a rite of passage that you have to go through in order to eventually become a solicitor. And, you know, you've got to earn it. Similar, you know, from the little that I know, it's sort of equivalent to promotions at, um, on the mats. You've got to earn it. You've got to put the time in. Um, they don't give them away. You know, you've, you've got to grind it out. And as well, the other thing, I couldn't walk around calling people dude or man. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You can't, you can't be calling, all right, dude, what's up? Do you know what I mean? You, you, you've got to put your work voice on. <laughs> you giving any accidental oss in the oss office? Oss. Uh, uh, no, but I do, I do, like, I do like talking about jiu-jitsu. Accidental shaka. Yeah, absolutely. What's up? Especially now, because from working from home and everything, all our lives now are pretty much based on like Microsoft Teams. Right. So you've got to be careful. But is that camera turned on or off <laughs> when you're talking? Um, no, I don't. I don't. I don't think I have given anyone an accidental us. We don't um, do it, use it too much here, do we? To be fair, I think there's. I a, think we should. I'm all for. Should we try and implement it? Yeah, I'm going to bring that up to ten. <laughs> Next time we're rolling, you'll you'll see me bring it in. Yeah, yeah. just like, it's, you got to use it all the time. It's like clap on three. Whoosh. Yeah, <laughs> it's so satisfying. I'll tell you what has started happening though is I use it at home now. <laughs> if I stand up and you know you get that lightheaded feeling. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd be like, oh, yeah, Baron asked me to get like a drink or something. I'm like, oh, it's yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, a universal term. Yeah, absolutely. Just you can apply it for any situation. Mm. So, did it get better? Did you start to enjoy the work more? I did. Um, I had two really tough seats. Um, 
and I think that was just the quality of my firm um, was that the workers were very demanding. They expected a lot of trainees. They'd invested a lot in mm. your learning and they expected something back from you. And I wasn't, I certainly wasn't a victim. I knew what I was signing up for and I was grateful. It was very competitive to get the position, but I had two really tough seats. The first, the first seat was grueling. And then the second seat was in a department called um, a corporate banking. Um, and what that involved at various times was working from sort of nine o'clock in the morning until one, two, three, four, five o'clock the following morning, going home and having two hours sleep, three hours sleep, four hours sleep, whatever, and then coming back in. And I think the longest stretch I did that for was something like six or seven days. Wow. Um, and um, that was grueling. And, I, and I, it's okay for me to say that, that the, the work wasn't for me and the lifestyle wasn't for me. Mm. But um, I literally had a piece of paper underneath my keyboard where it said, every day you do is, is one day less that you don't have to do. And this is really good experience, just push through. And when it was really bad, I'd just push it and then read it and push it back. Yeah. And then eventually I got into a department where I really liked the supervisor. I really liked the work and everything sort of came together for me. So it was a real provision. Do many people drop out at those stages? Or just like, fuck it and uh, burn out? Or? No. They people don't. generally think, kind of push through. Yeah. So I think in my, including my training, I've actually been doing this now for... Uh, I've been doing this now all in for, wow, coming up on about eight or nine years. And I've only ever known one person not finish their training. And that's actually because they transferred to China, mm. um, where they were actually originally from. So everyone finishes. It's kind of like, if you got that far, yeah. you're, like, you're probably going to push for it. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think with being a solicitor, it's gives you so many useful transferable skills that even if you don't want to do it forever, mm. it's still something which will set you up well. You know, it trains you to be a good office drone. So what is it you do now? Now you kind of, where's it taking you? Yeah, so I now work in, in an area of law called real estate litigation. And what that means is that um, the, the English common law system is very old and it's very well developed. We are the best dispute resolution um, center in the world. Everybody wants to bring their disputes here because the law is so good. Um, and real estate um, is one of the oldest and most developed areas of law, probably after um, shipping law, which is where most of our laws came from. It started with shipping. And so when there are disputes arising in the context of real estate, and by real estate, I mean like um, buildings, um, leases, landlords, tenants, that type of thing. Um, when there are disputes that arise there, you can spend a whole career specializing in the, within the umbrella of real estate law mm. and still never le learn everything that there is to learn. So it's a very uh, niche and specialized area of law. Um, but a lot of, you know, there's stuff like I deal day in, day out with leases, um, but it's a pretty wide ar array of things. And it can be someone's got a dispute and we need to resolve that dispute either by going to court or um, through another dispute resolution mechanism like arbitration or mediation. But also it can sometimes literally be we have a risk and we need to manage and minimize that risk um and that's that's what i do right um do you find um and it's okay if not 
Hmm. Um, many parallels between your work and the kind of things you learn on the mats. Um, it's interesting they say that because yes, I do, um, and increasingly more so. I think um, the two immediate ones when you say that all solicitors um, have to comply with the uh, with a code of conduct, and quite a few of those actually match to the principles that you and Professor might talk about on the mat. So the number one thing, acting with integrity. Mm. Um, and then I'd probably say um, being independent, having an independent mind. Um, and then not only that, but something which we always say, attention to detail. Uh, how we do anything is how we do everything. So the, the standard thing that's taught to trainees is if you can't if you can't write an email and nail all of the punctuation and spelling, how is a client going to rely on you to uh, pay sufficient detail, pay sufficient attention to the detail of their case that they know you're not going to miss anything? Because all that lawyers have got to show for their work is what comes out of their mouth and what's on paper mm. at the end of the day. That's all we've got. It's not like we're building something. We've only got the quality of our written work. And so that follows through a lot. And then there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff like in big litigation, one of the major things is just managing documents, keeping on top of documents so you know where everything is. Um, so having everything neatly filed away and da 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 da. Yeah. And the other thing that's starting to come in is um, when I find out how long someone has been qualified, I start working out in my head automatically what roughly what belt they would be. <laughs> So if they're like if they're a seven-year qualified lawyer, I'll be like, that's probably in around like something like a high-level blue uh, purple belt or something like that. Mm. And that that sometimes can intimidate me. <laughs> like if you get a twelve-year qualified lawyer, I'm like, oh, he's a black belt. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome, man. Yeah. Um, uh, t- tell me more about your jiu-jitsu journey. Like, so yeah. when you came, do you remember coming for your tr- trial class? Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah. Um, Trial, well, the, the first time that I ever came in, you were the first person that I spoke to, and, right. you, and you showed me around. Nice. Um, and I can, oh, I'm not going to say it's too nice. You're as lovely to be around now as you were that first day. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. You. There you go. That's the only compliment. Do these we'll cameras off. We'll edit, we'll edit that out. <laughs> I do remember the first class, um, and it was with Mr. Ollie Goss, because it, uh, it's, yeah. it's when we were having to buddy. That's right. I remember that now. Yeah. yeah. So I, for what, the first couple of months, I only rolled with Ollie. <laughs> That's uh, a tough couple of months. Yeah. He was so, he was so flipping good. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And I, I mean, I didn't know anything and he knew a little bit, but it was really good to roll with him. And I feel like we worked hard. I felt, you know, mm. Ollie was... I think you're a good, probably match for each other, to be honest, like, it's a good team. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I might be a big lump, but he's just dynamic and dangerous, isn't he? <laughs> so I think I got, I think some of my, my round the waist padding probably helped insulate me from some danger. <laughs> so, yeah, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that. Um, and I remember, I think, one of the first live rolling sessions that we had, I was with Professor Mike... And I think it was probably being too, not even technical, just being a big, blunt, strong person. Mm. And uh, I remember he got me on the back and I looked up and he was stu- his feet were on my chest and he was stood with his arms out <laughs> with this sort of, this, this grin with his arms out just looking at me. And I, I remember looking, I was thinking, oh, I'd, I'd quite like to know how to do that. <laughs> 
um, but yeah, it was. I knew. I knew I was. I knew I was hooked. And then after that, my my journey. I've done three competitions, um, which um, varied varied success. But that was a real step outside of my comfort zone for me. Mm. Um, I'm not sure whether I. I'm not sure whether I will compete again. Just because I'm. I'm. I feel like I enjoy my jujitsu being something which is not as pressured as my work. Yeah. Quite often with my work, I'll, a phone call will come and I need to perform instantly in front of people and I'm on the spot and I get an adrenaline rush and da-da-da-da-da-da. And that's fine because that's my job. But for me, the, my third space of jiu-jitsu, I don't know if I want the same thing of stepping onto a mat and having to perform and da-da-da. Yeah. So I'm not sure if I compete. So I'm a third three-stripe white belt now. And um, I really enjoy, really enjoy training. Always come into the come into the academy feeling a bit nervous. You know, am I going to be tired today? Am I, you know, maybe I might get injured or something. But always leave feeling fantastic. Um, and even one thing that I learned about myself very early on, which I was really glad about, is even when I got tapped or even when someone bested me, I genuinely was pleased for them. And it didn't annoy me. Mm. Um, and I was really grateful that I showed myself. That. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I, on that competition type stuff, yeah. I think after your last competition, you took like a little bit of time away from the academy, right? I did. What was going, what was going on then? So I think, um, I think at the time I had a couple of niggling injuries. And then my work became very pressured. And I think... Um, my mental health took a probably a, a turn for the worse. Um, I felt very. I was. It was. It was enough. I felt successful enough if I simply got up and made and functioned enough at work that I didn't get into trouble, and um, I felt very vulnerable and very wobbly. And I um, had some counselling, um, which I recommend to anyone um, who is feeling like that and I resolved some things uh, as much as I could in my life and it wasn't that I felt it wasn't that I felt that jiu-jitsu or the academy would be bad for me um, it's just that I needed to limit the number of inputs in my life mm. right down and just survive for a while and, and gather, get some wind back in my sails. And so I did that. And then I think Christmas had happened and we were, we were a couple of months in, I built up some steam. i started feeling like myself. And then I think the reason I didn't come back even when I was feeling brighter was work became busy again and just the inertia of not training. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that's definitely a big, like, uh, I think I hear a lot from when people have been off for a little while. Yeah. yeah like it's, it takes like a, quite a leap just to get back onto the map. Yeah. Um, but what I can honestly say is um, I'm so glad that I've come back. Mm. Was there anything in particular that got you back on that helped you? Um, I've, I'm very lucky that I feel like I've got some um, good pals here and people just kept checking in with me. Um, gently and just saying how are you getting on um, and that I knew I knew even though I was nervous about coming back I knew that I thought I would get I knew that I'd get a warm welcome back 
and that was really important. And I think, well, actually, I think the thing that got me back is um, Professor Mike messaged me and just said, listen, how are you doing? What's going on? And then he, he said, listen, don't lose what you learned on the mats and don't lose the friends that you've made here. Mm-hmm. And so what I said to myself is I'm going to come back for a month and I'm going to do three times a week. And then at the end of the month, if, if I decide I'm not going to stay, then at least I've done it and I won't have any regrets. Anyway, I came back. I think I did something like six or seven classes in my first week. <laughs> That's um, hilarious. And, uh, and loved it. And I'm really glad that I'm back. And, uh, you know, big thank you to yourself included and Professor Mike and our friends here for being so welcoming. It really, um, it really does make a big difference. Sure, it's great to have you back. And uh, you're one of the many uh, Johnny Gration yeah. completionists yeah. here at the Academy. Yeah, I couldn't quit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> tell me about the, the cut, because it's, it's a hard thing to do. Yeah, yeah. So, um, Johnny Gration, um, leader of the uh, UFIT UK, you can get them on Instagram, uh, program, trademark, did the 12-week transformation. Um, and I think it's just, I was sick of being a bit of a lump really. And didn't my, my weight training had become directionless. I didn't really know what I was doing with my diet. I think I was on the beers a lot and I just felt the winds of change and thought I'd, I'd tighten up. So I did that, saw it through to the end. Um, it was tough. It was tough. Mm. Um, the training I didn't mind. So you've got to do your 10,000 steps a day. You've got to do your four resistance workouts and then your two cardios the training and the walking I didn't mind didn't bother I enjoy lifting like weights that was absolutely fine the food was towards the end Johnny says it's not forever it's a tool to achieve a goal that you want and you have chosen to do this and you're not you know you're not a victim you can stop if you want but this is how you get to the end of the goal and then your calories will increase and you'll go back to normal and it'll be fine, but you'll have this enhanced knowledge of, the, of your nutrition, your training and so on. So towards the end, it was bloody tough. Um, you know, you'd, you'd have a couple of beers and that'd wipe out half your food allowance for the day. <laughs> so you could, I, you know, we, and I followed it to the T. Yeah. Followed it to the T. I'm glad that I did it. I'm glad that I had the fortitude to see it through. The difficulty for me was I finished... And then it was Christmas Day, like two or three days later. So dangerous. Oh, so, so there was more food. It's so why I had a whole Christmas pudding to myself on Christmas Day. <laughs> like, a, like a family size. Right? It was disgusting. <laughs> it was absolutely horrendous. But mate, you, you learn to discipline yourself so that you, you say when your body's saying I'm hungry, you say, no, it's okay. I know yeah. you're hungry, but you'll survive. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. But then it went the other way. So when I was too full... I was saying, nah, don't worry, you'll be fine. <laughs> you can make it through this. <laughs> Drink a bit of water, you'll don't, be fine. Yeah, don't be a quitter. Don't be a quitter. But it, no, it was it was excellent, and uh, Johnny was Johnny's really supportive, and I'd certainly recommend anyone um, who's wanting to make a positive change uh, to to torch Johnny because he's a man, um, and just know it's uh, you can do it, but it's a it's a tough journey. But anything that is worth doing. It's a challenge, you know, and so you've got to earn it, same as yeah. anything. For sure, I need to get back up on top of my diet, really, and, and lifting. Yeah. It's just, it just takes, uh, takes a toll on you, but I don't know, it's definitely just, a, you know, an excuse. You know, you can, you can still 
getting some good weight training. Yeah. You can still look after your diet. It's, um, man, well, I need to get on top of that. But the the challenge for you as well that I understand from talking to the professor is, as white belts, you know, we'll roll and we'll be expending so much energy because we don't. We have to try and compensate for a lack of technique with mm. you know cardio or strength. Whereas your skill level now, presumably you're using far less energy when you're dealing with the white belts because you've got the technique to compensate. Yeah, when uh, not to sound arrogant, but there's like I mean, and for sure, there's definitely people in the academy that give a very very mm. tough role. Mm. Um, but for the most part. Um, you know, I can I could roll the hard six sixes and then go to the gym. Like, yeah. like I'm just t- treat the sparring like a good way to yeah. kind of get warm and, and loose and a bit more motivated. Yeah. Um, well, if you ever want to train together. Yeah, I mean, get yourself a membership at David Lloyd and we'll go. David Lloyd? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, okay, let's go. Done. Yeah. I, need a, I need a buddy that's going to keep me accountable to actually go in. I so. we'll get there or we'll just sit in the steam room and have a I chat. I mean, that's what I thought we'd do. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I want to know we've got maybe like in, well we're at 45 minutes but I want to know some of the underground dirty secrets of the lawyer world the, un- the dirty underground secrets of the lawyer world well, you, you said that already there's kind of like um, you had a misconception already just about how hard it would be initially yeah. so and you've already said like they do some crazy hours yeah they do do some crazy hours what are, what are some other things things that people might not realise yeah so I think the, the the number one thing that you get um, the number t- the two things which you get most often are um, how could you defend someone um, even if you know that they're guilty mm-hmm. and um, is being a lawyer anything like suits the television programme Um they're probably the two things that you get asked the most. And um, in response to the first one, how could you defend someone who you know that's guilty? Well, first of all, um, the um, burden of proof um, in a criminal, um, in any criminal proceedings in England and Wales and for the rest of the Western world is you are innocent until you are proven guilty. And in order to be proven guilty, you have to show that you, you have to show that that person is guilty beyond all reasonable doubt, which basically means there has to be very little doubt. You have to be pretty pretty bloody sure. Mm. So, if someone, if your client says to you, "I'm innocent," well, who are you to say that they're not? If the court yet, if the court has not yet found that they are guilty, why? Who are you to say that they are guilty? Um, but then there's the question, but what happens if they tell you that they're guilty? Well, if they tell you that they're guilty, but they still want to pretend that they're innocent, then um, our code of conduct says you simply can't act. And you'd have to recuse yourself, which is you'd just have to say to the judge, I can't act here. And he'd say, why can't you act? And you wouldn't be allowed to tell them because of your duty of confidentiality. Oh, Interesting. Whether the judge would think, oh, actually, he's clearly guilty because his lawyer is sitting down, um, is stepping down, but won't tell me why. Mm. That's another question. So the simple answer is, if someone tells you that they're guilty, and then asks you to to say that they're innocent, well, the hard and fast rule is that you shouldn't, because you should always act with integrity. And your first overwhelming obligation is not to your clients, to the court, because you're an officer of the court. So that's the answer to that one. And then in relation to suits. I wish that the job was just smashing eight balls of whiskey and sitting around and shooting the shooting the shit. But the the reality, I think, is 
you just you're reading constantly and you are a tr- you are constantly trying to gather documents so that they understand the chronology of what has happened in something um, and you very you spend 99% of your time preparing rather than actually speaking to a client um, and you know, especially for the work that I do there's a lot of dusty documents and so preparing a case or preparing a letter or something it's not some it's you don't just simply down and start typing you you know I've got two screens and there's documents going on everywhere and I've got notes and you know I might have been cooking dinner the night before and I'll think oh I need to insert that so I'll make an email and then I'll email it to myself so I think where I'm going with it is that being a solicitor is for the most part 99% of the time not a glamorous job Mm. Um, is is there a, a case you've done and you don't have to go into detail or anything, but that you are like really proud of. That's like a bit of a career highlight for you so far. Yeah, and I think there can be there can be different types of highlights. Like you you may you may see that justice is served. You know, you you have you have corrected a an ethical wrong. Mm. Um, that's happened. It may be as well that you convince your client to do what is right. You know, maybe they were coming, they were going off in one direction and you said listen the moral and ethical thing is to do something else and if you and that's uh, in my experience those are the ones that have um, stuck um, more closely with me that that I think of most often that I'm the most proud of uh, because it was the right thing to do and then sometimes you might just be having an absolute war and you might be victorious um, and that there may there may not necessarily be an ethical question. It may simply be there's a dispute about I don't know anything whether a contract has been breached and it is the who is who on the day is the better mm. and who is the judge the most persuaded by. Sounds it's like like part historian, part like counselor, psychologist, part well fighter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I'd be interested in your view. So I'm going to say something, and, and you tell me. Being a lawyer, the easiest part about being a lawyer is the law. Any mm. third-year law student can do the law. The most difficult thing is, um, one of the most difficult things is managing personalities, getting on with people um, and, and managing different types of people. And I'd be interested to know, in your perspective, whether the same goes for your teaching, that the jujitsu is, the, is, the, is maybe the... E- Easier, not easiest, but the teaching and the relaying of the ideas to different types of people, is that the more challenging thing? Um, yeah, I'd concur. I think um, mm. I'm very much of the philosophy that you can't really teach anyone anything. You, you've got to help them find it themselves. Mm. I could, uh, And you can see it in the small in that I could correct someone's positioning multiple times yeah. and they'll get it wrong multiple times and they'll just keep getting it wrong. And then if I sit down with them and I'm next to them, I'm like, why should you put your foot somewhere else or something? Yeah. Or, you know, like, should your foot be there? And then they'll think about it and like, oh, no, it should be here. Yeah. And it's like, and then next time I go around, they've like corrected it themselves. Yeah, pen dropped. Yeah, so I think there's like a, a psychological element of it in in that that way. Um I don't, like I'm really, you know, new to teaching. I've only done it just over a year now, so mm. I think it's constantly evolving. I think um, 
how you teach kids is different to how you should teach adults, I think. Easier to beat up. Easier to beat up, yeah. Easy if they're messing up. around, yeah. you know. Get the tube out. <laughs> get the <laughs> silver sword of doom. <laughs> um, I think the, uh, when I'm teaching my best, I'm usually, you, you've got to know the techniques in, de- in depth. Yeah. Because that reflects in the confidence in which you teach the technique. Yeah. Yeah. And the more confidently you teach it, kind of the more kind of, the more, it's like the Jocko Willink thing, the, the more like disciplined you've been with learning that technique to its greatest kind of depth, the more freedom you have in teaching it. Yeah. And that can allow you to be more charismatic. You can put in yeah. jokes and, and hold the room a little better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, it, and in that, you can capture more people's kind of hearts and minds to buy them into the technique. Yeah. Buy-in for technique is, is, is super important. Yeah. I can show someone a technique, but if they did think, oh, this is not part of my game, like I don't do this kind of thing, oh, yeah. that wouldn't work. It's like completely just waste of both of our times, really. Yeah. So I've got to get them to believe in the technique. Yeah. Uh, and so they're not just like, oh, I just want to be here for the specific training and then the yes. lot of training after, which is yes. the part I enjoy. Yes. So there's that aspect of it. Um, and, and, and loads more. So yeah, I'd say the, the actual technique, while plays a small role, it's a very, uh, it's a small candle but reflects yeah. a, a very bright flame and that it affects, you know, Because you don't know stuff. how to do it to be able to teach yeah. it. Yeah. Well, it only takes up the smaller part, part of the thing, yeah. but I think it also plays like one of the biggest roles. Um, it's really interesting about what you said there about your confidence to be able to teach something and your charisma to be able to teach something there's a tendency and i did this when i started my career when i first qualified is that you're very wooden Mm. you feel that you feel that there's almost like a robot solicitor persona that clients want and that they almost you know you've got to speak in a certain way and you've got to talk in a certain way and you've got to lay it all out in a certain way and actually, the more I've found as I've, I've become more experienced that my technical skill has come up and the more that I have relaxed and allowed to show some of my human side, my personality to come through, that's how you get, that's how you comfort clients. That's how you get them on side is you, is you're confident and you're charismatic, but you've also got the skill. Yeah. And I think you, 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 you can't do one, you can't be an advisor without having both. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I think similar to what you said there, I think there's like the, you could be that wooden lawyer with like the all technical ability yeah. and that could be your black belt, right? That could yeah. be like, um, you're a, and that would be like a pra- practitioner of jiu-jitsu that isn't a teacher, okay? Yeah. They know all the technique, mm. but if they tried to relay it to you, they'll be very, they'd really suck it. Yeah. And I see like, I right now I'm a purple belt, but I'm a white belt in teaching because I've only done it for like a year and a half or so. Yeah. And that would be kind of the client relation, I guess, side of things for yeah. you. Like, uh, you're going to need the practical ability to be high, mm. but also as you start to teach, that that thing's going to come up higher and higher until you get, like, black belt in both, and then it's yeah. going to be, like, then you're going to be really on your game, I guess. Yeah, I 100% agree. 100%. And I think people can feel, I think it's very, very difficult to fake true confidence mm-hmm. um, because people spend their whole lives learning how to measure engage um the people that they're around and i don't think you can fake something for very long when you're under when you know, when you know the hours that you spend on the mat it's clear that you're comfortable and you're relaxed and you know what you're doing and people would feel maybe not even know they would just feel and i think the same goes for 
solicitors. Um, you just feel someone's confidence. And I think you can only develop that through serious graft in any field. I think it's time on the mat. Um, yeah, and hard work. Awesome. Well, I think that's a really cool place to leave it. Cool, man. Anything else you wanted to say or are we good? Uh, all good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here, man. I really, uh, it was really fun, actually. Yeah, I've had a really good time. Thanks awesome. so much. Thanks, Tom. Cheers, brother. Oos. Oos. <laughs> <laughs>